Welcome to Garden Church Podcast. We are in a series called Courageous Orthodoxy, Convictions for Resilient Faith. And for us at this time, we are looking at the foundations of Christian belief. We are trying to encourage you as followers of Jesus to live out of a robust theology. We're hoping that you would be encouraged by this and that you will ground your faith in the Word of God and you will live a vibrant life in the way of Jesus. Hope this empowers you and encourages you in your faith. We're in a series called Courageous Orthodoxy. We're talking about the things that matter most to us in this, this season, in this series. Um, and today I'm going to talk about the Lord's Supper. You might have called it Eucharist or the breaking of bread or uh, uh, the, the love feast, some of you know it, or the Lord's Supper. There's all these names in the New Testament that we get this, this, uh, this ancient practice. For thousands of years, bread... And wine or juice or crackers and gluten-free crackers, whatever it is, they symbolize some very significant things in the scripture. This, for thousands of years, um, has been the symbol for the Christian faith. Um, In fact, let me just do something to show you something. Um, For 1,500 years, the church organized designed, architected, if that's a word, uh, the, the actual structure of church facilities around the meal. Look, I know it was the table first for a few hundred years, but when we became, Christians became formalized and institutionalized and it became religion, the buildings were actually theologically designed around the bread and the wine. And then it was in 1500 during the Protestant Reformation where the Eucharist, the meal, was actually brought to the side. And the word was put in the center. Only 500 years ago by Ulrich Zwingli. And that was a debate between theologically between the, the symbolism or the literal presence of the body of Christ, which we'll talk about in a second. We're going to talk about communion. What is communion? And what, what is this symbolic sacrament? Sacrament is this, this Christian word, uh, and the best translation would be it's a, a visible sign, a physical or uh, a visible representation of an invisible grace or like the physical representation of an invisible spiritual, supernatural reality, sacrament. So we have, we have, in the Protestant tradition, we have communion and we have baptism, two visible signs of an invisible grace. Other traditions have more sacraments. I might throw in marriage as one of those invisible signs of, or visible signs of an invisible grace, um, which other churches would affirm. But the point is that this, this is a sacred thing and it, it represents something. It's symbolic to us. Um, I have this uh, safe in my closet. Now you know where it is. Um, and it doesn't, I mean, you could go to our house. The key is actually tied to the safe. It's not, it's really, there's no gold bars in there or anything like that. Like our, our passports and certain documents are in there. But if you were to go through my safe, which has like, you know, old love letters to Alex that I wrote a long time ago. She didn't want them. I kept them. No, she has some of those in there. Um, she definitely kept them. Right, babe? Yeah, okay, cool. Um, but there's a rock in it. 
like just a, a rock with a little smiley face. And you would see a rock with a smiley face. But to you, it's just a rock. But to me, I put it in my safe because of what it represents. A rock with a smiley face to you, to me, the day before my grandpa died of cancer, his body was riddled with cancer. My grandpa Fred got out of bed, which the doctors couldn't believe, and he was in hospice at his home, and he walked outside. He picked up three rocks, one for each of my brothers and I, and drew a little happy face on it as one of his last things he did before he passed away of cancer. It's not a rock to me. It's so, so much more of a rock. And that's what symbolism or sacraments really do. They, they, they give you this image of something far more significant. And so I want to talk about that. Go to Luke chapter 22. How many of you brought your Bibles today? Let's see all the good A students, extra, crown, extra jewels in the crown. You're welcome. Mansions in heaven. Yes, you go. That's, I'm just kidding. That's bad theology. And also, you're going to give your crown back to Jesus. So it doesn't matter like how many jewels you have. It's not a competition, but I have a lot more. Um, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Luke 22, where we pick up near the end of the life of Jesus and the biography written by uh, Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts. And let's just read Jesus. It's, it's called the Last Supper um, in Luke chapter 22. In verse 14, it says, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. I will not eat the Passover again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Okay, wow. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I'll not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God has come. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body for, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup, is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The Son of Man will, uh, sorry, which is poured out, but the hand, uh, we'll start there, which is poured out for you. So Jesus is celebrating Passover, and during Passover, he takes some bread and he takes a cup, and he uses the imagery and the elements of the Passover meal and redefines them to be about him and his ministry. So the question I want to ask as we talk about and reflect on what is communion is what, what, what's Passover and what are the implications of Passover for us as Christians who celebrate this as communion? Are you okay with this? So we're going to do a quick history lesson. So if you have a Bible, go to Exodus I'm going to Exodus chapter 12, um, Exodus 12, in verse 12 in just a second. Let me give you the backstory. I want to frame communion. We're going to practice this together today. We're going to, we're going to receive communion, but let's talk about the implications of this amazing gift we have to gather in the name of the Lord and take bread and wine or gluten-free cracker and juice and celebrate what God has done. Exodus 
is the story for Israel. Israel has been defined as the people who were once enslaved to Egypt and set free by Yahweh. Exodus tells this story. So in Exodus, you have the beginning of the story where the Israelites are enslaved for 400 years. They cry out to God because of the conditions of their slavery. And God sends a messenger, also known as a deliverer, Moses, to confront the king of Egypt. His name's Pharaoh. Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, is the incarnation of the sun god, Ra. He represents the sun god, Ra, on earth. So Moses goes to Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go. You've all seen Charlton Heston's version of this, hopefully, or maybe it's the other cartoon one, um, Prince of Egypt. But anyways, the point is, we know this story. What happens next is Moses confronts the Egyptian gods. And so when you read about the plagues, you see one by one, Yahweh attacking the various deities of Egypt. So in the first century, you have a group of slaves saying, God, the one true God wants us to go worship somewhere else. Let us go. And Egypt, which is a dominant military superpower with mass weapons and force, and they've enslaved these people, say no. Then Moses confronts and assaults every, uh, not all of them, but all these different gods. Look at the, the various plagues that come out. Each plague is an assault on an idol or a false god of Egypt. First, it's water into blood. They worship water. Um, frogs, they had a frog god, gnats and flies and livestock. Then boils um, appear on the Egyptians. Then there's hail and locusts. And then you get to the ninth one and there's darkness over Egypt. That directly assaults the sun god Ra. So what you read if you were Jewish, you would be reading Yahweh nine, Egyptian gods zero. Our God's winning, Yes. And that's really what's going on. Now, what's interesting about the first nine plagues is that they, uh, the Israelites just watch what happens. They're immune, you could say, to the plagues. So one by one, all this stuff happens and they don't have to do anything. God just does it for them. The blood, the the gnats. Like I'm really, I'm really glad it wasn't mosquitoes because that would definitely be the tenth plague for me. boils and hail. They just watch it and they're immune. They don't have any issues whatsoever with those plagues. They don't get touched by the plagues. It's only on the Egyptians until the 10th plague. Now this is where it gets interesting. Okay. So chapter 12, um, it says this, it says, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. So verse chapter 12 actually shares a little more details. Let me give you a little more details for for you. So what was happening is nine plagues, they were exempt. They were immune. They didn't have to do anything. The 10th plague, God says, look, I'm actually bringing judgment on all of the land of Egypt. All the firstborn males are going to die. Now, what's interesting about that is the way Pharaoh passed on his deity was through his firstborn son. 
This is an assault against the ultimate Egyptian deity. Now, God says to Moses and to the Israelites, I'm going to bring my judgment and there's going to be an angel. The nickname of the angel, the destroyer. Not sure if I want to meet that one in heaven. But anyway, so the destroyer is going to come and he's going to kill all the firstborn. Really intense, right? But he says, but I'm going to give you a way out. I'm going to give every Israelite a way out. What you have to do is you have to take a year old lamb and you have to sacrifice the lamb, kill it, as an offering to God, you take some of its blood and you put it on the doorpost, so the frame of the door and on top of the door. So the blood on the door, on the sides and the top, will be a sign for the destroyer. And then the destroyer, destroyer will pass over you. It's called the Passover. So that night of the 10th plague, Israel had two problems. Number one, They were enslaved to Egypt. Number two, everyone was subject to God's wrath and judgment. So on the night of the Passover, all these little lambs are sacrificed. They put the blood, they eat the the meal, they put the blood on the doorframe. And God says, when that happens, it's going to break the back of the Egyptians and you're going to be set free. And it's that night that you, it says in scripture, there was wailing all night. Every household in Egypt suffered a death in their household except for the Israelites. And they are set free. And then God sends them out on their exodus out of Egypt into the new land which he had prepared for. This is the story. This is such a big deal because Passover becomes the festival. Passover becomes the defining story for the people of God in Israel. Passover becomes the beginning of the calendar year, day one. It's so significant, they change their calendar around this event, and they're called to institutionalize this event and to celebrate every year, to remember as a meal what God did back then, because Passover is God fulfilling his promise to Abraham, I will make you a treasured possession. I will make you a kingdom of priests. You will be my people. And it's that decisive act where they slaughter a, a Passover lamb, put the blood on the, on, the, on the sides of the door frames, and God passes over them that empowers them to become the vocation of Israel, the treasure, the priests, the people of God. It's this defining act that they would celebrate year after year, remembering what God has done. And year after year, they celebrated it. But what we read in the Old Testament, if you read it, is it depends on who's in charge. Because at some point, bad kings who do evil in the eyes of the Lord, they don't celebrate Passover. But every once in a while, a king who does what's right in the eyes of the Lord celebrates Passover. They celebrate the festival. And by the time it gets to Jesus, thousands of years later, the Passover meal, through the work of rabbis and oral tradition, turned the meal into what's called a Seder. Say the word Seder. Have you heard of Seder before? So it's the Jewish meal that celebrates the event of Passover. And by the time of Jesus, it was institutionalized. It was a, 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 a formula of events that had rich symbolism, which we'll talk about in a second. And the rich symbolism was designed for you to partake in this meal where you wouldn't just read the words and say the prayers and consume the wine and the, and the meal. You would, you would act, you would participate in the Seder as a way to remember 
what God did back then and how you are now in this present moment part of that ancient story of God's liberation and redemption and God's uh, faithfulness to his promises, God providing a way out for people. In the Seder meal, uh, the Seder meal has all sorts of food that you eat and consume, but it's kind of organized around four cups. And these four cups have four different meanings, and they all come from Exodus chapter 6. So if you go to Exodus 6, I want to just read this to you because I think it's actually very important to describe as we try to define what did Jesus mean when he said what he said at a Passover meal? And what are the implications for us today? So Jesus takes the Seder, and he takes elements of the Seder, and he says, this is my body, and this is my blood of the new covenant. So in Exodus 6, we get four cups out of it in the liturgy of the Seder meal. Um, Verse 6, it says, Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Uh, Cup number one is I will bring you out. It's the uh, cup of thanksgiving, cup of blessing. It's God, thank you for all that you've done. So in the liturgy of the Seder, cup number one, at some point in the meal, four cups of wine. That's a lot of wine. Um, You consume that cup. As a cup of blessing, God would bring you out. Thank you for all that you've done. Cup number two, uh, it goes on. It says, I will free you from being slaves to them. Cup number two is the cup of judgment. It represented the 10 plagues that God brought to the Egyptians, that God would free them from their slavery. The cup of judgment, I will free you. Cup number three, so let me just add this real quick. Um, Two of the cups were consumed before the meal, the Seder meal, and the other two cups were consumed after the meal. You with me? So cup number three is, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with mighty acts of judgment. Cup number three is the cup of redemption, where God not only, not only are we grateful for all that God has done, that he's faithful to his promises, not only are we grateful that he freed us from his slavery, but he redeems us into identity and vocation and personhood. And then cup number four is verse seven, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. And um, the cup number four is the cup of fulfillment of promise, that God would fulfill all of his promises and restore the people of God once and for all. So there are four cups in the Seder meal. So there, there's the Seder meal. Jesus on Sunday before this uh, Passover, before the Thursday Passover meal, Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey, which was symbolic because it's prophesied in the Old Testament. People lay down palm branches on Palm Sunday, we call it, and palms represented a very specific uh, narrative. A few hundred years earlier, a Jewish person, the, uh, the Maccabees, revolted against the people occupying Jerusalem and defeated with all the odds against them, defeated the occupiers and cleansed the temple. And so as they lay down the palm branches, they're symbolically saying, Jesus, take out the Romans. But Jesus doesn't go to Rome. He goes to the temple and he flips the tables upside down. My house will be a house of prayer for all nations because there was a corruption in the space that's designed to let the presence of God dwell. He says, my battle is not against the Romans. It's against the things set up against God's creation, which we know to be sin, Satan, and death. Those were the bigger enemies than the Romans. Jesus comes in on the Sunday. Why, Why is that significant? That day is the day that you would select and present your spotless lamb for the sacrifice. So here comes our sacrifice riding in. 
as the Passover lamb. He preaches to the religious folks and all the people in Jerusalem, and then he says to his disciples, I eagerly desire to have this meal with you. And it's at Passover that Jesus um, takes, in verse, uh, it says, he takes the cup, he gave thanks, and he says, take this and divide it. Verse 19, he says, he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, After the supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So Jesus consumes two cups of wine, and then he takes the third cup, which is the cup of redemption, and he says, this is the new covenant provided for through my blood. Now, back in Exodus, What you have, let me just say this, because I know most of us are like, yeah, I've heard this. But if you were Jewish, you're like, the, the, the alarms would be going off. Like, wait, hold on. What are you, are you saying what I think you're saying? So back in Exodus, God frees the Israelites, meets them at Mount Sinai, fire, smoke, they consecrate themselves, brings the 10 commandments and all the 613 commandments in the Old Testament. He presents this, the festivals, the religious system, the the way to be clean and unclean, the what to do with mold in your house, all that stuff comes to them. And at, at the end, in chapter 24 of Exodus, God makes a covenant with them which is like being, it's like a marriage vow. Covenant is not like a a contract, it's an agreement. But in the covenant, God's saying like, you're gonna be my people, I'm gonna be your God. You're gonna be for me a holy nation set apart for the rest of the nations and you're gonna have a vocation, you're gonna have a purpose. Your purpose is to represent me everywhere you go. And this covenant is you following your commands and I will be the God to you, just follow my commands. And then they make this covenant together in chapter 24, Moses, it's verse eight, Moses then took the blood of a sacrifice, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant and the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is the blood of the covenant. It took a sacrifice to make that commitment. It took a sacrifice. Somebody had to die for this to become into an alignment. And in Moses says, the blood empowers us to live as the people of God. Now, how in the old covenant do you live as the people of God? It's exhausting. 613 commands, rituals, all the ladies in here during that monthly cycle, you can't be in community, you live outside, you can't go and offer, there's so many issues, every sin, everything you do wrong, everything has to be atoned for through sacrifice. And once a year, let alone the other festivals, you bring, every family brings us a a lamb to sacrifice. Imagine Jerusalem, the size of about Costa Mesa, a little smaller, Imagine the smell of the burning lambs every year when the thousands of people brought their lambs to be slaughtered. That's the Old Testament. Jesus, let me just finish with this. So we're talking about Passover. We're talking about the sacrifice. Now, what were the two problems that Israel had the night of the 10th plague. Do you remember? It's been about 10 minutes. Slavery, Slavery, God's wrath and judgment. Think think about this for a second. What are the two problems we face outside of Christ? 
We are enslaved to sin. So some of you are new to church. What's sin? Sin is missing the mark. You were designed to live in perfection with God. You were designed to breathe in the air of the Garden of Eden, where you have right relationship with yourself, with God, with your, with your community, and all of creation. That's called shalom. Anything that misses the mark is sin. So what the story of Scripture tells is the story of humanity. It tells my story of how far off I get without the presence of God in my life. How bad. It's not hard to look around and see all of the problems that we see in the world. All you have to do is turn on the news. You see the decay and the chaos and the fear and the pain. Also, it's not hard to see because you can just look in your own life. We are all enslaved to something. Apart from Christ, the Scripture says, you have no hope. Now, I know culture and society is trying to give you hope, saying, well, if you just do the juice fast, if you do cold water plunges, you know, 40 days of breathing, Wim Hof breathing, that's going to help you out. That might get you, go to therapy, that might help heal some of the trauma. Absolutely. I'm not against any of those things. That won't save you. In this room, we are addicted to pornography, alcohol, drugs. We're addicted to sex, consumerism. We're envious. We're full of greed, inappropriate anger. Avarice is the word for that. We, are, we have so many issues here. The way we speak to our spouses or our kids in an unkind, un- dishonoring way. We have been enslaved to our desires. Our desires have been distorted to where we do the things we know we don't want to do, but we do them anyway. That's called slavery. We're not only enslaved to sin, but there is a power. His name is Satan. You can call him Beelzebub. You can call him demons. There is a prince or powers and principalities. There's evil in this world working against God's good and beautiful world, rejecting and rebelling against God's way, forming you into its own image. That image has a fruit. It has characteristics. It's anxious. It's prideful. It's disturbed. It's addicted. It's being torn apart by culture. And we just continue to consume the culture's devices and ways. We, We live from those narratives and we can't help it. So some of us are here and we're so insecure that we hate ourselves. Because we've been formed into the image of the world. We're so full of fear that everywhere we go, we have worst case scenario because we've been formed into the way of brokenness. We have a problem, slavery, sin, death, Satan. But we also deserve wrath. This is, I know it's hard. We're in like, you know, the the happy Southern California world, especially now that we're in Orange County. Um, (laughs) It's a different vibe over here for sure. Uh, I mean, Brian Loritz was right. I'm looking at yachts, man. What kind of church has yachts outside? Favor is not fair. Anyways, we're going to move. Um, <clears throat> just kidding. <laughs> I, I just, I'm cracking up, but we deserve wrath. And I know it's hard to hear, but a loving God is just. How does that work out? Well, if you tried to hurt my family, and I know this is not PC, I'm going to stop you from hurting my family. (laughs) Like if you try to attack my kid, there is wrath inside of me. That's justified. You're not going to touch my boys. I'm sorry. Like I'm going to prevent you. Plus I studied some Krav Maga, so I know some things. (laughs) Am I right? Yeah, we were doing chokeholds in there. Nose and like, it's pretty intense. Anyways. You're like, I did not know that about my pastor. That's okay. 
Just kidding. A loving father protects. But justice means getting what you deserve, right? To be just is doing what's right, being righteous. Justice is connected to righteousness, and God's righteousness requires him to act in and out of the character that he is. So when we are designed to live in perfect unity and act outside, God can only give us what we deserve. That's where anger comes in. That's where wrath, that's where judgment. But God is also love. And this is what I love about the Christian faith. It's held in tension. God is both just and love. And what God does is he gives, he makes a way to cover what we deserve. You deserve the judgment of God, the anger of a loving father on you for all of the sin and all of the evil and all of the brokenness that you carried in. But God is love and God sends his son Jesus to be the sacrifice so that you get passed over on the judgment of God. Jesus takes on the sins, which is what the Passover lamb would do. And he becomes the atoning sacrifice. And in the sacrifice, let me do it this way. Jesus takes some bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body broken for you. So he takes this thing that would be at every meal, but especially that in a Passover meal. He takes a symbol of Passover and he says, what's about to happen is for you. Jesus' body is literally ripped apart. And every time we come to the table, every time we gather in church, we take bread, gluten-free cracker, a wafer, and we remember what happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. That we deserve wrath. We deserve what we get but through the sacrifice of our God in Jesus Christ, we don't get what we deserve. And this is the gospel. This is the good news, the announcement, the full announcement of the arrival of God's way of life, the way it finally comes through once and for all is through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we have this this practice, this symbol, every time we gather, and I feel convicted because we haven't been taking it every week. I mean, I take it every week, because I'm theologically correct. You, I don't, I don't know. But we, we're going to start as a family recognizing the symbolism here. Let me just keep that in the center to make it a little more accurate for at least today for the sake of illustration. We deserve God's wrath. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus frees us from our slavery and he takes on what we deserve. And through Jesus, we receive grace and mercy. We receive identity and vocation and we receive life because he gave his life. 
Luke 22. So in this, this um, passage, it says, it says, do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance. Now it's hard for us to really translate what that word actually means in Greek, but I love what uh, N.T. Wright says in his little book called The Meal Jesus Gave Us. He says, the hardest thing about the sacraments is they invite us to look at time in a different way. The term memorial does not mean merely bringing something to mind or remembering. It refers in some way to bringing that past story and the divine action of the past into the present such that the present audience becomes part of the story and receives the benefit from such actualization. So, okay, what does he mean? The best way I can describe it is what athletes do when they're preparing and training for a match or a game. Like athletes will meditate about their training. So for example, recently, my son Ezra's swim, a swimmer, he's swimming. And I, was, I used to be a swimmer. And I was telling him, hey, before we went to practice, I'm like, hey, remember when you get to practice, when you go there, remember what I told you back then, a- actualization. Uh, when, you're, when you're swimming, don't put your head up and take a breath like this right? But when you're swimming, just when your arm goes back, turn your head, take a breath and keep going, right? So that visualization, it's recalling what I talked to him about, what he's trained in the past into the present moment that's pulling us towards the future. When we take communion, Jesus says, in remembrance. What are we remembering? Well, we're remembering the Exodus story, We're remembering that our God is a God who provides a way. He passes over. He redeems his people, all those things. And then we come to Jesus and we're like, our God fulfills the ultimate exodus in Christ. And in Christ now, we take this remembering the cross, remembering the blood, the new covenant, remembering we're we're coming going, Jesus, this is what I do. I remember your story. I take the bread which is your body. And I remember all of my junk, for lack of a better word, that puts you there. Every time you take communion, do this in remembrance, visualize, actualize, come to the table going, my sin puts you there, Jesus. My inappropriate anger, my lust, my pride, my envy. Get real specific. I'm bringing to mind the cost. It was not a light or cheap sacrifice. So I, I, I break the bread or I open the cracker. And I recall the cost. Christ's body broken for you. His, for you, not like you generally, but for me. And then I, I take the juice and he says in Luke chapter 22, he says, in the same way after the supper, so it's the third cup, which we already talked about. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Remember Exodus 24, the blood is, the, is how we make a covenant. Now Jesus is saying it's, it's a new covenant. Remember the old covenant? How do you get in? How do you remain in the covenant? 613 commands. How do you remain in this covenant? You receive it. You think how unfair that is? How crazy? How offensive that really is? Like you don't get what you deserve. Before Christ 
keep the law, the letter of the law, dot the I's, cross the T's, follow it. That's how you're, you're in only when you stay. Now we're in through grace, which is God giving us the power and strength to do what we could never do on our own. So we take, we take the cup and we, we consume, we consume. We do it as a way of remembering what God has done. Paul has some instructions about this. I love it. We call it communion. We call it the Lord's Supper. We call it Eucharist or the, 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 the love feast. Um, the Lord's Supper comes from 1 Corinthians. It comes from uh, the image of Jesus dining with his disciples. Uh, it has some significant things around the table of the Lord. Uh, the Eucharist comes from Luke 22, where it says he, he gave thanks. That's, we get the word good gift. So it, it requires us to receive. Somebody gave something, so you receive. So it's called the Eucharist. Um, it's called the breaking of bread in Acts 2. So one of the things I want to just clarify is uh, when the disciples in the New Testament gather, they they regularly broke bread. They, they would break the bread. You couldn't cut it. They broke the bread and it was both symbolic of eating meals together, but also the symbolism of taking or receiving communion. So as Christians, is it every meal we eat with a bunch of Christians, is that the same thing as communion? I'm going to say no. It could be, but what I'd like to suggest is actually we need to pull back and create some sacred rhythms around the bread and wine or the cracker and juice. That maybe you are eating a meal with people, but then you pause the meal and you go, hold on, hold on. we're not just Christians here. We're not just hanging out with our families. We actually need to pause because Paul says, whenever you take this, you're declaring the Lord's death until he returns. And I love this because what is he saying? He's saying, look, whenever you take communion and you take it the way it's intended, the symbolic act of participating, remembering, uh, being a part of the story, whenever you do this, you're proclaiming the gospel. And I love this because for us, this is communion. This is this act. What I love about it is, is what it does against the last three years in the church. Last three years, got a lot of emails, read a lot of posts. You know, in the church, it's like, are you voting this way? Are you voting that way? Do you believe this about BLM or this about BLM? Do you believe this about justice and race? Do you believe this? Where do you stand on all these issues? And we belong to a church that votes like us, that dresses like us, that believes the same things outside of all of these lists. We dis disagree. We will not have fellowship with them. But the word communion means participate and fellowship, meaning when you come to the table, you're in fellowship not just with God, but with each other. So now all of those dividing lines, you know what happens? You can't, you can't take bread and drink the juice and be like, I disagree with the bread and juice. That post you said, all of a sudden it unifies us in the very act of consuming. In other words, you can't, can't argue against consuming grace. It does one more thing, and this is probably a little more offensive, especially for those of you that like your neat, tidy life. You can email me later at john at garden.church. Um, <laughs> he's not even in here. He's helping in kids because we need kids volunteers. Um, one of the things I think about regularly when I take communion is that this is designed to be an expression of life together and life with God. And when I was in, our, when we, we started our first house church, my wife and I led with Michael and Amanda. Um, 
we would take, we would regularly come to the table of communion together and we'd say, hold on, time out. We can't take this until we make sure everyone in the room has what they need. Because true fellowship requires me to suffer with compassion with my brothers and sisters. So we would come to the table and be like, okay, not only are we going to examine my life with God, but I got I to gotta examine my family, my, my house church here, and got to make sure that rent's paid. And there were times where rent wasn't paid for some people. And we would right then Venmo and make sure it's taken care of because we got to make sure you have enough food when we leave. Paul talks about this in Corinthians. We got to make sure your rent's paid. You got a car to get you to and from work. Okay, great. Okay, that's been taken care of. Cool. Now we're, now we're good. Let's, let's take this and consume Let's proclaim. Let's push aside the pastors and the priests and the brands and the worship leaders. And let's just come to the table because this, this is what we believe. This is what we can agree upon. This is what saves you. Christ's body broken, his blood shed out, come and consume. So communion, this is what it means. This is what we believe. This is what we celebrate. And so we're going to take communion as a family. And from this day forward, I want you to take communion whenever you come. If if it gets, you know, rowdy and chaotic and we don't have time, I'm trusting you to be responsible now. You don't have to email me like, oh, you didn't do it. It's okay. You can be resilient. (laughs) Go find some crackers and juice, grab some people, and let's take communion. Can we all stand together? Thank you for listening. We are Garden Church. To find out more about our community and to find resources to help you in your spiritual journey, visit garden.church.